No credentials. Greatest album. Welcome back and thanks for joining us again. Today we are discussing album number 21 on Rolling Stone Magazine's top 500 album list. This is Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. We have reviewed this album already before. It came in at number 18 on the 2012 list. In fact, it came in at number 18 on the 2003 list and the book as well. Um, and it's fallen just a couple spots to number 21 here. Um, what do you think about that move, Mike? It's not a monumental shift. I think most of the albums that we've already tackled have either like had a big mm-hmm. rise or fall, and all of a sudden we've got one here who's just kind of stuck around in the same sort of ballpark. Yeah, of the 20 albums we've reviewed so far on this new 2020 list, not too many of them have uh, stayed relatively the same. You're right, a lot of them right, moved. This right. one, I think this is actually quite appropriate because considering all the albums that were much, much lower and moved up to the top 20, I'm actually impressed that this one wasn't bumped too far down. There were some other albums yeah, higher yeah, up that sure. were bumped a lot lower. Um I'm very interested in how you feel about it because this was an album that was new to both of us. And although it was also new to you, you really took a liking to it right away. Now, has it stuck with you? Is it still one that you listen to a lot as much as you did when you first heard it? Or is it one that's kind of uh, moved out of your rotation? Gather around kids. It's story time. Um, During the, uh, (laughs) during our little hiatus here, um, a significant life change has happened in my household, and that is that we've acquired a record player. Whoa. And the first album I purchased on uh, eBay was this one. Hey! Um, to run. I found for a good price and um, and was able to, to pull the trigger. Uh, so it, it cl- clearly has had an impact on me significantly enough right. that I wanted to own a physical copy of it, and it seemed uh, appropriate to get it on vinyl. Um, I, so this one, especially, I, not only was I surprised to enjoy it, but I had fairly clear memories of actually despising Bruce Springsteen born in the <laughs> USA, particularly, um, his voice just kind of drones and it's repetitive. And I never quite understood whether it was trying to be patriotic or edgy or underhanded and, um, it didn't seem all that interesting. And I think for that reason alone, I I just always had a bit of a negative taste in my mouth when Mm. I thought about Bruce Springsteen. So to fall in love with an album from this guy, uh, and you know, in, in hindsight, born to run is a lot of those things. There's some monotony. He's not a great singer. (laughs) It's not terribly (laughs) like, uh, like, uh, really, really intricate kinds of music. But it, it's really good, and I think it's um, worthy of being on this list and being fairly high on this list. And boy, when I press play on Spotify or um, now when I drop the needle on on Born to Run and those first sort of uh, notes just start like hammering into you, uh, you know, it's like drinking from a fire hose. He just throws everything at you, and I, yeah, I love it. I, I I just get swept away for for some reason. I, I, totally did not expect that but um so i'm quite pleased that it's here and that it 
uh, hasn't fallen too much. And I'm, I'm really curious to go back and listen to my more naive uh, voice from uh, several months ago when we first looked at this album to see, you know, what that moment in time was like and to remember and reminisce a little bit. Hmm. I like what you said about uh, drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> when yeah. I uh, when I roomed with uh, former guests of the show, Chris Clements in college, I remember him very vividly. We were listening to the song Born to Run once, and he said, uh, Bruce Springsteen isn't subtle, is he? uh yeah that's something that i I, you know one thing i love about vinyl is when you there's an anticipation when you drop the needle and there's a few seconds it's different than an mp3 or uh even a cd there's that you know few seconds of static just hearing the needle down on the vinyl and then getting hit with that first note and born to run starting with thunder road uh, is it, it's a great way to start off an album. Was it the first vinyl that you put on your new? Because I know you just got it very recently. Was it the first right. record you so put on? A, this was a package deal. An old guy uh, was getting rid of his records. He'd had everything in storage for the last decade and decided it was time to move on. So right. um, we bought everything, a record player that, that needed a bit of attention mm-hmm. and 68 uh, LPs. Wow. <laughs> so... Uh, it was not in that stack. So the first thing I put on, I think, was um, uh, I was I wanted to hear something that I knew, but something that I wasn't too concerned if it got wrecked. So I put the Cars' greatest hits on uh, for the very first needle drop, um, and it did not go well. the The needle <laughs> was bad, and it needed to be replaced. So I'm kind of glad it wasn't an album I really cared about. But uh, I, I think when I finally got an, everything fixed and replaced, uh, the Eagles. Uh, greatest hits was, yeah, good call. Good call. was the next choice another sort of one that i ne- definitely knew and and i still hadn't received uh, born to run in the mail yet so it right. wasn't the first but it's the first first lp i ever purchased i guess there you, you could go say, aside from this a lot of used ones that were basically the guy giving me what he had <laughs> yeah 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 uh and i guess if the needle had been really good it would have been kind of an underwhelming first listen to have the car's greatest hits on there. <laughs> hey now come on there's some good stuff there <laughs> I guess we haven't got to that review yet. That's right. <laughs> um, patience, patience. But uh, yeah, so uh, we're going to play you our review of Born to Run. Ben, we had a special yeah. guest with us for that one, didn't we? Yeah, my friend Joel Widener. He lives just down the road here in State College, and um, it'd be good to hear his voice again. Yeah, so we hope that you'll join us on our next episode when we discuss album number 22, which is Ready to Die by the Notorious B.I.G., but first, yeah. listen to our previous review of Born to Run with our special guest, Joel Widener, coming up right after this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. 
Welcome back, everyone, to Sound Logic, and today we are discussing album number 18 on Rolling Stone Magazine's top 500 albums of all time list, which is Born to Run by the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Mike and I are a little bit too young to uh, really be into the the boss during his prime time. So uh, we found a friend who has a bit more um, personal knowledge and personal tie to that era, that moment of music history. Um, uh, I'm really excited to have my good friend Joel Widener here with us tonight uh, to record. Joel, uh, I, I guess I know Joel in a couple of different uh, capacities, but um, Joel's a big reason why I'm actually here in State College. Joel was on the search committee that brought me to town um, in my work with Third Way Collective at Penn State, and then he served as uh, chair of my advisory team for a number of years. Um, uh, yeah, probably probably goes without saying, but I, I probably wouldn't be here without you, Joel. And um, Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you you might not be that. here. Even, even the continuation of the job, uh, you were a calming presence in those first few years where we didn't really know what we were doing to say, hey, you're doing you're doing something, keep going. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's great to have you. Um, Joel's mind came to mind when I thought about uh, this album in particular because uh, several months ago, he and his wife, Krista, had asked if I had seen um, the Netflix special Springsteen on Broadway. And I hadn't, um, but I went and checked it out and I, I kind of had mixed feelings about it, but they loved it. And uh, we were very offended. So, yeah, we, that, <laughs> a little bit offended. That your I wasn't initial, your initial reaction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in the meantime, I've gotten to listen to Born to Run, and I've uh, I've actually been surprised by how much I appreciate this album. And I'm hoping, uh, you know, Joel has a much longer uh, love and appreciation for the boss, and, and I'm hoping that his presence here will add some uh, perspective. Joel, you've seen the uh, you've seen Bruce a couple of times in concert, is that right? Um, yeah, actually three times. Wow. I was just going back and refreshing my memory. Um, although, you know, the perspective issue, I, I, you know, I graduated from high school in '76, so it was right around when all this was going on. But mm-hmm. I, I, I wasn't into Bruce um, so much back then. Actually, it wasn't until I was older that I really. Uh, appreciated Bruce and his work a little more. So um, I think we saw him the first time in Pittsburgh, and that was 2009. And then mm. we've seen him, oh no, no, that was 2007. And then we saw him two times at the at the Jordan Center, Bryce Jordan Center here in State College at 2009 and 2012. So okay. all those are fairly recent compared to right. you know, his history. Right, certainly not, um, you know, uh, when this album came out, right, 1975. Right, right. Um, yeah, well, that's that's great, though. Um, Mike and I weren't even born when this album came out, so uh, even though you're, you came to Bruce later in life, I'm sure you've got some perspective that we don't have. Um, something that we found helpful is to have the guests uh, share a little bit about themselves as we get going. So how do you describe yourselves to, to people who ask, uh, who are you, Joel, uh, these days? Who am I? Man. Well, <laughs> I retired. This is your life. I retired from Penn State in uh, 2015 after 33 plus years uh, managing IT um, at the university in the business divisions. 
And so I'm actually, I have no regrets about that, really enjoying um, the freedom of being retired and pursuing uh, some of the things that that I really want to do instead of pursuing things that I should be doing. So it's been been good. Um, The first year after I retired, I I hiked the Camino de Santiago in Spain, uh, 500 miles across northern Spain. And that was, that was an awesome experience. And then uh, most recently I've been working, I I always had the idea that we might start a 10,000 Villages uh, nonprofit and store in State College. And and so that's been a big part of my life the last uh, two years. And we we actually did open that store and it's up and running. And and that's kind of fun to see that happen and to continue to be involved in that. So, um, yeah. Yeah, long term. Seems like you're one of those one of those people who's busier in retirement than you were. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you were some days it feels like that a little bit. Um, yeah, but it's it's good. I, I like to I like to do stuff and uh, been riding my bike a lot. Got a new road bike uh, last uh, last fall. So I was I was talking to Ben ahead of time about we need to bike out to Elk Creek Cafe yeah. for a, for a beer sometime and a local brewery out in the countryside. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciate you, Joel, for a lot of different reasons, but I appreciate, especially that it, it seems like a lot of what you do with your life is shaped around, uh, justice causes that you care about. And, um, yeah, you, you're, uh, a great mentor, a friend to have in my, in my world. And, uh, I appreciate your presence. I think you share that with a lot of the guests we've had on the podcast so far. And I think people like you who have that, outlook on the world, understand music in a slightly different way. And I think that's helpful to hear as well. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. All right. Well, so you're, you came to Bruce a little later in life. Do you have early memories of this album in in particular? You talked about, um, you know, the mid seventies, you were kind of in high school. Do you have any memory of this album uh, as it was coming out? You know, I, I, I must've heard it on the radio and, and the yeah. song, you know, born to run and, and, um, but you weren't in the record store that it came out Thunder, to buy it. No, no, I was, <laughs> I was listening to, um, David Bowie and, mm. and Rush and, uh, Pink, Pink Floyd <laughs> and Frank Zappa and the mothers of invention and some, some of the more, a little more alternative uh, type music yeah. back. Oh, then. I think we're so, going to be really good friends. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so how was Bruce seen in that era then? Was he seen as more of a kind of poppy rock star? You taught, you mentioned those other bands as, as seen pro- as sort of prog alternative rock. Yeah. rock. Um, prog rock yeah how would you how would your friends have described bruce um, back in the day you know all my friends were listening to the stuff i was listening to too so i yeah it just he really wasn't on the playlist so i I hate to disappoint you with that long (laughs) long term perspective but it it really wasn't until later in life that i i really came to appreciate his stuff well, I th- no, I think that's helpful though. I w- I remember talking with my dad about the Beatles, and he was saying like the Beatles were kind of like teenager girl music. I just didn't care about them. Yeah, and you know we we build this picture in our minds that like the Beatles were so big that like every single person under the age of thirty was a huge fan, and that's just not the case. Right. Um, Springsteen has this massive album, um, but depending on what genre you're interested in, what circle of friends you're with 
you were either really into it or didn't care at all. And right. I think that perspective is helpful because, yeah. you know, we lump all these things together as like classic rock. They all get played on the same radio stations now, but they were clearly not listened to by the same people right. um, when they all came out. Right. Uh, I have a question for you, Joel, and uh, about, you know, you said you got into Bruce later in life, and I'm wondering um, if you kind of know why that is. And the question I have is uh, when I listen to this album and Bruce Springsteen and I look at w how old he was, he was 26 when this came out and I do not hear, it doesn't sound like a 26 year old man uh, when I hear his vocals and mm -hmm. what he's singing about and even see pictures of him. He doesn't look, uh, if you look at the people who are 26 right now, uh, in in the showbiz, <laughs> you will not find right. the same kind of image um, there. And I'm wondering, uh, did you find you could relate to Bruce more as as a middle aged person, or was it something else? Was it just that it wasn't in your sphere of listening at that time? Yeah, I think you know my musical taste just shifted a little bit, right. and. Um, he just wasn't in that, that really early sphere of something that I was into. Um, I, again, you know, certainly heard, heard the music on the radio, but wasn't, you know, wasn't really seeking it out. I'm, I'm trying to remember when I bought, you know, I probably didn't even buy an album until it was getting to like, uh, uh, born in the USA is probably when it really got, when he got popular later on right. again, um, that I bought. I think that was probably the first album I bought. Maybe Ben and I are just, uh, you'll find that we try to make things deeper than they actually are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We're just I pushing you to <laughs> try. He said, no, nah, guys, I just didn't listen to it. <laughs> What's yeah. interesting about the way, you know, you talked about he didn't, he looked older than a 26 year old. Although he's really stayed in good yes, shape, man. Now when you see him, he he looks younger than I don't know how old how old is he now? He's gotta be seventies. Um he looks pretty darn good now. And he is like when you go to his shows, he he just goes nonstop from one song to the next with barely a pause in between. Uh -huh. Um he's he must still be in really good shape to put on the kind of shows he does. Yeah, Bruce is going to be 70 this year, and, and he looks fantastic. And I feel like Bruce hasn't yeah. aged in about 20 years. Uh, yeah. He, he yeah. Just, he, uh, that's the, uh, the guy I remember from the 90s. It's like almost the same. Yeah, he's uh, he's plateaued. Well, and I think there's something about, you're right, Mike, his voice in 1975 sounds like oh. kind of a grizzled even back older then. older guy yeah and so when he's a grizzled older guy it, he can still sing those parts <laughs> um, i remember james taylor saying something like uh he tried to write with the understanding that his voice was not going to be able to hit high notes at some point down the road and so he always tried to write kind of within a register knowing hmm. that he'd be able to sing these songs for the rest of his Continue, life yeah it almost seems like that's what accidentally what Bruce has done here um, because he kind of sounds older than he was uh, as a younger person. Mike, I'm curious that we got a bit of Joel's perspective on this album. Um, uh, what, have you listened to this album before? Is this something that was uh, this new to you? This album was very new with the exception of the title track and uh, 10th Avenue Freeze Out I was familiar with. 
And as I listened to it, the whole thing sounded very familiar, even though I couldn't pick out like, yes, I know this tune, but the, the sound of it was familiar and felt like, oh, I feel like I should know this. Um, but when I push play, um, yeah. I, like a lot of these other albums, it was exciting because I didn't know what I was going to get. I had no idea. I was just like, here we go. Um, and, and that, and I love that. I've, we've done that. I've done yeah. that a few times now where I just sit down, I have some time blocked out or some space where I don't have to be interrupted. And I go to just my finger hovers over that play button for a second. Like, Oh, I, uh, what's going to happen, you know? And, um, <laughs> I don't want to get into the tracks too much just yet, but just hearing the opening to thunder road is like, I felt like I was just kind of transported right into this, this whole album. And so, yeah, it was a brand new experience really uh, to hear just how complex the album was a lot more complex than I thought it would be. Um, yeah. I, I thought it would be, you know, and I don't even really know what this means. Kind of a generic rock mm -hmm. sound straight, you know, straight up and down four four time, um, simple drum beats, simple rhythm section, um, some, some very cheesy horns, uh, in the background. Um, that's what I thought it would be, uh, just based mostly on my ignorance of Springsteen's music. Um, I was pleasantly surprised. That's not what it was, but we'll, we'll get into more of that later, but yeah, no brand new to me. <laughs> me too. Um, for some reason, right. <clears throat> this album stood out as one that I should know. So like, er, you know, when we started this project, I kind of went through the top 50 and and mentally highlighted ones that I thought like, why, why have I never listened to Bruce Springsteen? Why have mm. I never listened to Billy Joel um, is another name that kind of popped out. Um, and so I get, I started to listen to this album almost as soon as we began way back in January. So <laughs> it's, it's strange probably because of how long it's taken us to get to number 18, but I've listened to this album now, I think more than any other album on the top 20. Um, and I, I really, I really like it. I, I too wasn't sure what to expect. Um, <clears throat> I had some preconceived notions that were not terribly positive. My two, the two songs that jumped to mind first, when I think about Bruce Springsteen mm. are born in the USA and glory days. And um, perhaps because of how frequently uh, Toronto's Q107 plays those two songs, uh, I was pretty tired of them uh, from a fairly from a fairly young age, and I found them to be formulaic rock, uh, like you were saying. Just kind of, um, I don't know. His voice doesn't change a whole lot in either of those two tracks. Uh, it's they're both four four timing. There's not a whole lot of uh, you know wild uh, expansive trajectory that the music takes you on. Um, it's more about uh, telling a story, I guess. And, um, I, I was also surprised by, uh, the, I don't know, just the way that this album is, is crafted was, uh, was much more expansive than I expected. And, uh, very similar to, uh, are you experienced the, the Jimi Hendrix experience album that we listened to a couple of weeks ago? Uh, you know, within the first couple of listens to this album, I thought this is the kind of music that I was expecting to be on this list. Uh, a really finely crafted album that has stood the test of time that, that makes me say, wow, when I listen to it. And uh, even though I hadn't heard it before, felt familiar in a way that I wasn't necessarily anticipating. We've kind of jumped ahead and gotten into preconceived notions. 
do you have anything more to say about that, Mike or Joel? Well, I think what you said too is like he's the lyrics. Um, I mean, he's a he's a poet, you know. He's he's a poet, and his lyrics are just um, they tell stories that I think uh, yeah a wide range of of age and and people coming from different places in life can relate to. And uh, I think that's what's really powerful about um, about some of these songs. And he's captured a sound that seems to go with the storytelling in this album that I'm really drawn to. Um, each song sounds somewhat different, but they draw you into that poetry and sort of set a mood, right. set a tone in, in a really, I think, a really powerful way. No, I think that's that kind of sets the tone. Should we get into some album details, Mike? Details, 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 details. This album was released August 25th in 1975. It was Bruce Springsteen's third studio album. And the whole thing was written by Bruce Springsteen. Uh, it is with, of course, the E Street Band. Well, in the, the notes that we found when we were digging around... Um, we we discovered that uh, the recording process was so intense for this album that most of his band quit. Just the, with the intensity of this recording, there are a dozen guitar overdubs on the title track alone. And after <laughs> the uh, the process of Born to Run, which took six months to to um, record, wow. his pianist and drummer both quit the band. Um, and and so the pianist and drummer that were hired as replacements, uh, Roy uh, Bitten and, and Max Weinberg are hmm. the guys who then stayed and became his his sort of iconic E Street band. I think it's important to for context to say that this album um, kind of saved Bruce's career. His first hmm. two albums did not do terribly well, huh. and there was a lot of pressure on him to to come up with something that was going to sell that was going to sell, um, and that was why. He poured so much of himself into it. Why the album took so long, uh, more than 14 months to record. Uh, and I, I found this to be really interesting. Um, the The songs are all, uh, I'm, I think without exception, there's a piano or organ or some sort of keys or xylophone in every single one. And um, I found a paragraph that talked about, he kind of locked himself in his house at the piano, um, forcing himself to craft, to craft a masterpiece. And so we think about Bruce being this storyteller with a guitar, but a lot of these songs were born out of that, like, um, you know, forced stuck with keyboard, uh, (laughs) a a kind of different, um, crafting process. I think than than when you zoom back and take in the scope of his career, it's a lot of a guy sitting at a keyboard, hmm. like trying to save his soul because he knows, you know, if he doesn't produce something here, he's probably done, you know, mm. three albums into his career. And so uh, even though the guitars end up kind of coming to the forefront in some of these tracks, there's still that that piano um, or keys of some kind uh, pretty much all the way through the album. And I think it's because of that recording process, because of like forcing himself to just play and play and play Ooh, until he that, found per- that's interesting. perfection. Wow. Yeah, I was, I was reading here that the E Street Band has been with him since pretty much since 72, 1972. Okay. So, so a couple right. of the guys must have survived. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> in some, yeah. some incarnation. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that's really cool. Um, and so they made the album and the album peaked at number three in the U S um, and it has sold since then almost 10 million copies, which is not too shabby. Um, and as you mentioned, Ben, uh, the album took 14 months to record, which even in today's standards, I think, <laughs> I think is quite long uh, back yeah. in that we've, we've talked about so many albums there are so many artists who've just released albums at furious paces and who went in, you know, went into the studio for like 10 days and came out with the whole album or did it in one take. And right. Was it just the Dylan's blood on the tracks where like the whole thing from beginning to end was like four months or something like that. Um, he like cranked through writing them all. And... Yeah. Even on top of that, he recorded it and then half of them, he scrapped and went to another studio and recorded them again. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we also have gone through quite a number of artists that were, um, just writing at a prolific pace in the sixties. Like, uh, well, I guess Dylan would be yes. one of them, but the, uh, the Beatles as well, you know, would have multiple albums come out in the same year. <laughs> Which is, yeah. Uh, the Be the beach boys, uh -huh. um, like I think their first 10 albums only took them seven or eight yeah, years right. to do, uh, just, just, well, you know, just, uh, frantic pace but this is springsteen's uh third album in three years so he's he's done well but this one obviously took yeah. a while it, yeah it boggles my mind that you could spend six months on <laughs> one song uh, well i think it's um it's it's in this era when uh phil specter's wall of sound has been um proven to be successful as the studio's you know, expand their capacity. They shift from four track to eight track to sort of multi-track recording. And all of a sudden the technology right. is there to like make these deeply, deeply layered masterpieces. So it's no longer just going mm -hmm. to the studio and like, okay, the drummer lay down the beat, the guitarist lay right. down his thing, the singer do his stuff and the bass player over the top. Um, he's got, he's got time to like make it perfect. And so, uh, you know, a dozen overdubs on the title track, just from the guitar uh he you know he's building this in a very intentional layered way um and i i, I think i have a note here um he was struggling to get the sounds that he heard in his head out into the real world like he couldn't he couldn't articulate or explain them to people uh to get them to produce them and uh yeah I, there was another piece where i i read uh one of the saxophone solos in this album, and I'm forgetting which song it's from, is like two minutes long. Um, every single note was written down on a piece of paper by Springsteen for the saxophonist to play. Like he had the entire thing kind of mapped out in his head. It sounds like a saxophonist is just going off on a, a solo. But he knew what but he wanted. He had yeah. such a yeah. specific idea of what he wanted. Um, and there's stories of him like getting what were supposed to be the final cuts of tracks and like hurling them across the room or like one story of him chucking the, the thing out the door and into his swimming pool. Cause it, it just doesn't fit with um, the sound that's in his head. Huh. Wow. We have another sort of iconic album cover here. Um, so, the, so the cover um, and Ben, you can add to this cause I know you have some details here. The cover is uh, Bruce Springsteen in all caps in the top right corner coming 
over halfway to the left. Underneath, about two-thirds down on the right is Born to Run, all caps, but about half the font. And then taking diagonally, kind of creating a triangle with his arm and the guitar, his uh, you know very famous Telecaster that he plays, his Bruce with his arm. He's leaning on the back of, I believe it's Clarence Clements. Probably. Um, and he's kind of got his you know, mouth and nose resting on his hand. He's kind of grinning. Um, and it's, I don't know. What do you got? I, it's really, it's a really neat picture. It's just like, he looks very happy and you know, there he's got his leather jacket on and his hair is kind of mussed up. Uh, pretty shaggy looking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shaggy. Like yeah. just, but, but very, but very loose, very comfortable, very relaxed, um, holding his yeah. guitar, you know, and kind of, he's not really, he doesn't even look like he's playing a, no, he's just kind of holding it. Just hanging out. Oh, I'm just looking at the full picture now. So is there anywhere, like if you open up the album, like is that, is the rest of it on the back? Yeah, if you're on, on the inside of the album. Okay. If you look, if you, you, see, you can see it's a full picture of Clarence with his sax when it opens up. Oh, Actually, that's, that's, a, I've, I've never seen the full shot. That's a great picture. Actually, that looks like it's a 40th anniversary, maybe re-release. Okay. Um, that's got a, a full picture. I'm not sure if it was in the original. Maybe maybe it was. Uh-huh. He has a button on his jacket. I'm, zoom, I'm zooming in on the picture. It's Elvis. Oh, it's Elvis. <laughs> Elvis. It says Elvis something. Kings. Kings something. Elvis Presley from her. The, I can't read it all. I think it has something to do with Elvis. <laughs> interesting (laughs) sorry no that's all i got that's interesting uh wikipedia has a little blurb that uh it was a three-hour photo shoot and the photographer shot 900 frames and apparently uh you can buy a compilation called born to run the unseen photos (laughs) which i don't know if it includes all 900 frames but you can flip through and get all the different angles that they took it's amazing to me because it looks somehow at the same time, it looks both perfectly staged and really casual, like almost a break between yeah. shooting or something like that, um, which I guess is a sign of a good, a good shot. He definitely looks happy. Like you said, it's a, you get the feeling that he really is happy looking at him. So I found an image of the button. <laughs> uh, I've made it my mission. Um, it says Elvis, the King on top. With a picture of Elvis in the middle on the left, it says King's Court. On the right, it says Elvis Presley. And on the bottom, it says Fan Club of NYC. Nice. Hmm. So it's an Elvis fan club. I don't know what any of that means, <laughs> what the significance <laughs> is, but, uh, um, you know, another another callback to. It looks like that button's actually on, maybe on his guitar strap. Maybe it's on his strap, not on his jacket. Yeah, so it's part of his, part of his guitar outfit. You're right. It is on his strap. That's interesting. And and interesting. He looks like he's wearing blue jeans, but Clarence has leather pants on. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Leather pants. Too funny. This was not a cover. Like some of the other covers we've talked about have been like just so iconic. This one I wasn't as familiar with, but it it's got that air of iconography to it. 
Were you good? Were you, I mean, you know, Joel, you have it, Ben, were you familiar with it? I, yeah, I think it was somewhat familiar to me, but not as iconic as the born in the USA cover. I think we talked about that right, at some yeah. point when we were oh, thinking yeah. back to uh, the Columbia House mailings that would come, and you'd have to, you know, tear off those <laughs> little stamps. Uh, born in the USA, I think, was one of those that always seemed to show up in those uh, no. buy one CD, get fifteen for a penny or whatever. Um, <laughs> with the flag, everybody his, likes a good. Everyone his, likes a good butt shot. His you butt, know? right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe if you just turned the other way, this one would have been more iconic. I'm, I'm not sure, but Clarence's butt is there. So <laughs> I was going to say it's quite shiny too. <laughs> I didn't realize uh, just how many spinoffs this had uh, inspired. Oh, um, but apparently it is. Uh, uh, Wikipedia lists uh, Cheap Tricks album Next Position Please uh, Tom and Ray from the Car Talk uh, show on NPR have a compilation album in which they sort of recreate this image there's a Sesame Street album with uh, Bert and Cookie Monster that are sort of doing the same leaning uh, image and, and a, a whole host of other ones as well um, so it's iconic enough I guess to be imitated which I guess is a pretty a uh, clear sign that it's that it's got some pop culture status. Do we want to talk about tracks? If you don't mind, I, I'd like to ask Joel. If we why don't we start with that, Joel? Yeah. What what are your favorite uh, tracks here? If you if you're able to pick out a few, well, I'd probably say well, you know, Thunder Road and um, Born to Run, definitely, and probably Tenth Avenue Freeze Out, and I don't know if I'd. Toss up between she's the one and Jungle Land, maybe. Um, it was int- I, I I think I, I was going back and looking at, you know, I, I remember some of these concerts I saw. I think I heard all these done live except for um, Meeting Across the River, which was one I really didn't remember very well. I went ahead and listened to it, and it's not my favorite. <laughs> Right, <laughs> that one's very different than um, than the other uh, songs on this tracks on the album. It's a bit more melancholy and right. uh, slower. Paced. Slower, yeah. I just got done with a bike trip, a longer five day bike trip, and uh, I like to ride with a little USB speaker uh, paired with my cell phone. I can listen to random music when I'm feeling a little sluggish or trying to climb a big hill. And I put Born to Run on the one day, and one of the cyclists riding with me was like, wow, I really like uh, the E Street bands, but they are not subtle, are they? <laughs> and uh, so many of these songs are just like blasting in your face. Meeting Across the River is not. No. Um, you know, it's softly done. It's on piano. Um, the, the, uh, the ones that you mentioned first, Joel, Thunder Road and... Um, born to run there's just this like it really is that specter wall of sound that just like blasts right. you especially if you've got headphones yep. on um, you feel the song kind of hit you when, in all of its multi-layered uh, intensity um, meeting across the river is, is is one of the only sort of subtle songs on this on this album Joel was there a, a live performance of any one of these songs that really stood out to you that you just felt, oh man, they just nailed that one. 
Um, yeah, probably um, the well, the best concert I I my favorite concert of the, out of the three I've heard him was 2012, and it was right after uh, right. It was the year of Hurricane Sandy. Okay. Which really affected the Jersey Shore, which is where you know Bruce grew up, and um, it was also the uh, I think it was his first tour after Clarence had died. Okay. So Clarence was not with him, and Clarence's um, nephew was was playing the sax, and I think continues to be with the band to this day. Um, but that was so that was a very it was an emotional concert and he just uh, throughout the whole thing he just kind of took the audience it felt like he was just leading you through this experience and um, and then I think encores you know when he does encores he does like four or five songs like or maybe more <laughs> for his encores and uh, he did I think Born to Run and 10th Avenue Freeze Out were both part of his encore set um, wow. okay. for that one. And, you know, it was just pretty amazing experience. I, I, that's maybe one of the best concerts I was ever at. Well, it's interesting. We weren't going to go because uh, we heard him in 2009 and and he was back at the Jordan Center. And we're like, oh, should we go see Bruce again? I'm like, yeah, yeah, tickets are expensive. And. Uh, my niece was actually coming up. She's like, oh, I want to go. I'm coming up. She's like, I'm going to come see him. We're like, okay, well, you can come up and you can stay at our house. <laughs> and so then um, I worked for um, Auxiliary and Business Services at Penn State. And that was the, the business division that actually managed the Bryce Jordan Center. And I was working in my office that day. And um, my, my boss's boss, the assistant VP, came into my office. And she's like, what are you doing tonight? And I'm like, ah, nothing really. And she's like, you want two tickets to Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah, I do. So um, totally wasn't expecting to go to the concert. Um, wasn't planning on it, but my wife and I, Krista, went. And it was just, it was an awesome experience. That's awesome. I, it says something about, uh, you know, how well a song is hold, held up when it comes out as an encore. Yeah, um, you know, yeah. Clearly yeah. beloved, but to have a couple of the songs from it still being held out as yeah uh, stuff to reserve for the, the the sort of people pleaser end of the show, <laughs> I think it says something about it. Both Born to Run and Tenth Avenue Freeze Out were singles released with this album. Um, I saw somewhere I read that uh, this album had kind of like a secondary wave of success. When uh, Born in the USA did so well, people kind of went back and, mm. and purchased his back catalog. Huh. Um, That's but cool. But unlike some other albums uh, that we've gone through so far, it doesn't have a huge number of singles, and um, that that's somewhat surprising to me that all all eight songs have a uh, similar vibe, and I, I think a number of them could have been. Uh, they sound like radio singles, um, but only two were ever released that way hmm. and not not jungle land i think it's like 10 minutes long or something. <laughs> yeah <laughs> a little long yeah. a little long thunder road yeah. though that surprises me that that's not ever been a single and uh, uh, even backstreets i think has a, a pace to it I, I don't know i like it yeah I'm, th I'm thinking maybe out of all of them thunder road might be my favorite i mean those 
the it's opening lines song. to that that are just like man it just draws you in <laughs> yeah, um, yeah you can you can just pick you can just picture it you know you can just <laughs> it starts out so softly yeah. too with the piano right. and harmonica and then just kind of grows into this massive right. yeah. kind of thing it's uh, again continuing our observation that the bands that we've listened to seem to be obsessed with modes of transportation and <laughs> you know all Travel. the albums we listen to Hi- highway 61 revisited abbey road exile on main street blood on the tracks born to run Interesting. <laughs> it's all about <laughs> moving <laughs> and even on yeah. this album thunder road 10th avenue back streets you know it, it, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of i don't know i guess yeah. it's just uh, we all relate to that in some very simple mm-hmm. way well, he is a poet, and he writes about what he knows, and right. what he knows is New Jersey, <laughs> and that sort of blue-collar upbringing. Yeah. In, in Although I know if he, we were talking earlier before the show started about his when he was his Springsteen on Broadway when he's talking about some of the stories he he fesses up he confesses that you know he's like I write about working in a factory but I never worked in a factory I write about you know I write about working on cars and but I've never worked on cars you know so he uh, but I mean I guess that's the talent of a good story writer that you can you can write about the experience of others and yeah. make them make make them relatable yeah I've changed my tone slightly on that Netflix special. I uh, I think I appreciate it more now that I appreciate this just, album. Just keep watching um, it. Just keep watching it. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he, he talks about like meeting people and really entering into their lives in a way that I don't really think most celebrities choose to do. Um, he, he talks specifically about uh, you know, meeting with, uh, I think it's in the Netflix special, meeting with a guy who's like let me take you down the road to uh the local va and, and meet with some right veterans. right and, uh, and he does he hops in the car and goes with him um i think that he understands if i'm <laughs> if i'm gonna be making stuff up i also have to know the human experience and right. i need to continue to immerse myself in people's lives i can't just live in a mansion on a hill and talk about being poor um he does have this ability to, right. I think, stay connected to reality. And even in his concerts too, he's, again, he's so connected to um, the people that are there. You, you just, you just feel this sense of connection that's that you don't feel in in a lot of other artists. I mean, I, you know, Bob Dylan. The last time I saw Dylan, I can't remember when it was, but it it felt like he could care less if there was anybody sitting in the audience listening to him or not (laughs) and it was a terrible concert (laughs) i i I hate to confess that i actually walked out of a bob dylan concert because it was it was it was bad he couldn't sing and and again you got the feeling that he didn't care if you were there or not you know whereas with uh, the, the concerts with springsteen he he just is so connected to um, the people he's playing for. It's it's an experience. Interesting. Yeah. I think one of my preconceived notions was that Springsteen, uh, like Dylan, doesn't really sing. He just kind of like <laughs> talks with music. 
Um, I was surprised at how melodic his voice can be, even though it's not the greatest voice. Uh, he just kind of gives it his all, and, and it does sound like he's shouting a little bit at times. Yeah. But he's really belting into some of these songs on this album um, in ways that I wasn't really anticipating. Uh, she's the one, especially, I think, he just, I don't know. His vocal range is pretty impressive for a guy that I've never really considered that about. He's got a very commanding vocal on pretty much the whole album. He really, he really puts everything into it. Uh, a coach might probably disagree with his technique, but <laughs> um, he, he really throws it all out there, and it it makes a big difference on the tracks. I think so. Uh, and what stands out to you, Mike? Um, as you um, go through this track list I think it was an experience when I put on the first track Thunder Road my my eyes kind of lit up my eyebrows raised and went oh this is you know starting with the harmonica and the very very nice piano lines um, yeah. in the first few bars just oh I was kind of oh I didn't expect that and then how uh, the tempo picks up and the full band comes in I was just kind of like, I was really, really enjoying myself. Wow, this is great. Um, so Thunder Road is kind of special because, to me, because when I first listened to it, it would just really grab me. 10th Avenue Freeze Out, I love how it has, it kind of switches. It starts in one way and then goes into another thing. Um, and I really, one song I keep coming back to is Night. And I like that it just, kind of like Born to Run, it, mm-hmm. it, there's no build-up. It just goes right into it. And the gu- <laughs> the guitar sound, uh, that very twangy, slightly distorted Telecaster sound, both in Night and Born to Run, um, is just really, really unique, a very signature to the e Street Band sound. You really hear that coming out on that song, and that's one I really enjoyed. Can I ask you about the drum kit? Uh, two albums ago, uh, you mentioned a, a mid-70s drum sound yeah, when we yeah. went through Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. Do you hear that here? Yes. It's, it's, and I was thinking about it more, and it's, it's really a, 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 it's a, it's a produced sound on the snare mostly, a very kind of, we'd said muted snare, but I think there's even a bit of reverb mixed into it. I, don't quote me on that, but... But I hear that it's it's kind of it pop it lasts a little longer than the in the 60s was more of a crack and a, a bang um, yeah. and it's I I wish I had the the kind of technical terminology to be able to describe it better but I went back and listened to some of the older stuff after that conversation some of the Beatles the Dylan and then you know when you listen to albums like Blood on the Tracks. And Born to Run, you hear that mm. much more, it's very, uh, a little more treble to it. Um, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it, I definitely hear it now more when I listen for it. Um, do, do you hear that in this album, Ben? Yeah, I was, so I was focusing on the snare drum specifically because that seemed to be what you were talking about on that album review. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a thinner snare. It's not as booming. Um, uh, yeah, again, s- similar to when we talked about this the last time, I never would have pegged that as mid-70s sound. 
but uh, you've got me onto something now. <laughs> I'm going to continue to listen for it. I think. I'm going to try and figure out where it first happening. It, uh, we first start hearing it. I'm wondering if you if we listen to um, like the dark side of the moon. Um, I think you would start to hear it there. You know, that a very very standard rock beat. You know, think about a song like Money or Time, uh, and the snare is very prominent there, where it's a little more like on, on you know, think about the Beatles in the early 60s. It's very poppy, but it's it's more echoey and not as uh, it's not as controlled, I think I can say. And like I mentioned before, a drum kit is a very challenging thing, and I will use that word thing, because, <laughs> you know, with a guitar, you've got you've got six strings to manage. That's it. Uh, and you've got some microphones that pick them up and you can modify it a bit with drums. You've got every, every different drum and cymbal is totally different and they're all very close to each other and they're all very loud. (laughs) So how do you, how do you record all that? And I think that as the technology got better and the techniques got better, I think it was one of the last things that was recorded really well. And I think that as we enter into the seventies and again, I'm speaking slightly out of ignorance, but you can hear it. <laughs> it starts to get it starts to get better and better, or at very least, it gets different. Um, but then, when you get into the '80s and into the '90s, you really hear you know some very think about a band like Rush, uh, very very technical drumming happening, and they had to change their approach. and And of course, the technology, the microphones, everything was changing. But I think you start to hear it in the '70s. And it's very prominent on this. Anyways, I could go on and on about that, but it's something that kind of, it jumped out in my headphones as I heard these things. Um, And I think it's very, for me, when I hear that, even if I don't know the song, I can tell the difference between a 60s and a 70s tune, you know, outside of style and recognition by uh, by the drums. So is that primarily the, the recording techniques, you think, and the technology? not as much the kits that were being used or even the techniques of I, I think it might it might have been you know the the types of snares were changing a bit or maybe they were playing they were they were uh, putting the the heads on tighter because it is mm-hmm. a tighter uh, tighter sound so I, I don't really know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna claim to know that but um, I think it's probably a combination of both right. So you said, uh, Ben, you did say the drummer quit after, quit the band after. Uh, yeah. So I'm curious if this is Max Weinberg. No, this, this would get? not be him. I, well, well he, that's a he good jumped question. in after that guy quit. That's a, um, yeah, that's a good question. The album was Springsteen's first to feature pianist Roy Britton and drummer Max Weinberg. Uh, although David San and Ernest Boom Carter played the piano and drums on the title track. Okay, so it was the title track that burnt them out. And Okay. Um, so, <laughs> so Max must be on the rest of the album then. Okay. Uh, huh. That's interesting. I So a thing that's coming to me as I'm uh, having this conversation with you guys tonight is that there's a bit more of an operatic quality to this than I was anticipating. I think, you know, as I began to realize that this is going to be more than just formulaic classic rock, um, what emerged was the storytelling piece and the sort of big production. And it, it's making me think a little bit of um, 
Billy Joel, and even even maybe Meatloaf. Now, I don't know how <laughs> Bruce's fans would would like those comparisons, but there there's more piano than I was expecting. Um, there's more there's more grandiose quality to it, I guess, is what I'm is what I'm getting at. Um, all, not quite like a rock opera, but that sort of vibe. Like we're we're building something big here, and uh, not just four four three chords. Hmm. I have to think about the Billy Joel comparison for a while. Um, we don't get to <clears throat> the Stranger until album. I don't know. It's like seventies or eighties. Um, but there, yeah, I, I don't was... know. I'm feeling a lot of similarities in in that album that I've also gotten to much much later than I probably should have. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't think Billy uh, Joel's quite the lyricist that springs. No, I don't think so. His lyrics are far more cheesy and uh, yeah, not as poetic. Uh, but uh, the Stranger comes out in 1977, so similar. Uh, production values, I'm guessing, and similar kind of, uh, you know, what was popular at that time in sort of rock pop. Uh, he's he's far more piano forward, and Bruce is far more guitar forward, right? Uh, at least how they're perceived. But <clears throat> both of those albums kind of blur those lines a little bit more than I was anticipating as someone who, you know, listened to them for the first time 40 years after they were written. Uh, I went to a show once when I was younger and one of the opening bands was called The Suicide Machines. Oh. So that's, uh, I can only assume now that that was ripped straight from this, from Born to Run song. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is a weird way to appreciate an artist, but I think my desire to, to check out Bruce... Uh, started even before we began this project and I think I can even pinpoint the time because it was uh, their inclusion on the final episode of The Daily Show that Jon Stewart hosted. For the years that Jon was on The Daily Show, he concluded each episode with a moment of zen and on his final episode he said, this is my moment of zen. Nothing ends. It's, it's just a continuation. It's a pause in the conversation. So rather than saying goodbye or good night. I'm just going to say, I'm going to go get a drink. And uh, I'm sure I'll see you guys before I leave. So that's our show. I thank you so much uh, for the privilege of being able to perform it for you, for the privilege of being able to do it. And so here it is. My moment is in. And Bruce came out with the E Street Band and played two songs. Oh, wow. And, uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, one of the second of which was Born to Run. And uh, during Born to Run, all the staff that had ever been on the show kind of came out, surrounded John in front of the band and like sort of formed this weird, awkward looking mosh pit. <laughs> um, you know, they're both uh, from New Jersey and have this sort of blue collar background rise to fame. Um, and I thought, well, oh, John Stewart likes this guy can't be that bad <laughs> and i really liked his, <laughs> i really liked his rendition of, of born to run in that moment and and you could tell like john was just so into it he's like singing along and um 
it was a moving episode for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, Stephen Colbert comes out near the end and like, thanks John for the way that he launched so many careers. And and John was apparently pretty insistent that no one does any thanking of him <laughs> ever. Like, don't thank me. Thank yourselves for being so talented. And and they basically said like, screw that. You've you've done something special for us. And, and he, he was deeply moved by it. Uh, but the the inclusion of the of the boss at the very end just seemed like incredible icing on the cake. I guess um, there's a I think that it's still up. You can kind of click through the interwebs and find clips of that final show um, to check that out. And then and the Bruce Springsteen performance. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty neat. So uh, yeah, I feel strange saying like a, a fake news show on Comedy Central got me to at least try and appreciate <laughs> a musical artist that I probably should have given more time to anyway but eh, it's weird how things work sometimes the only thing that I'll add is um, you know I mentioned those two overplayed songs <laughs> Born in the USA and Glory Days they both come from the Born in the USA album which shows up way down the list at number 86 uh I, there have been a couple moments where I've thought, do I listen ahead and <laughs> and see if I like that one more than I think, too? Uh, but I think I'm just going to kind of tuck it in my back pocket and get to it eventually. <laughs> uh, we'll see. I, I, I don't know. This is the only album I've ever really engaged with by Bruce Springsteen, and I really, really like it. And I don't want to try something else and be, be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah i don't know maybe joel you'd have some advice on like yeah, where to go I, from here um you should listen to um i wonder it'd be interesting to see what you think about wrecking ball which was more recently okay um, I, I really like that one um that's a interesting he he really he's changed as he's okay. gotten older um almost seemed to be a little more reflection spiritually on you know where he's at with things um so he shows up a number of times on this list and uh the wrecking ball is not one of those albums so uh, that'll be really, good yeah well i don't think that's one that got a claim right. but it's a good it's a good album okay. it's, and it's different it's got some different stuff on it good to know um, well it only came out in 2012 which was the same year that that pretty, the second list was released so Oh, right, oh, okay. Right. So maybe if they ever do a revision, it'll be on that. <laughs> oh, I and hope maybe, they don't, because then we're going to have to redo the whole thing. Again. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm partial because you played a number of those songs at the 2012 concert oh, sure. that I really enjoyed so much right, as well. Yeah. So because that was his most recent album, so sure. he Makes was sense. featuring that. Um, the other thing, back to um, I, I was thinking of a story. Born in the USA didn't. Didn't, um, shoot, who was running? It was one of the presidential elections, and I think somebody was playing, uh, one of the Republicans was using Born in the USA as a... Um, <laughs> Wasn't it the first George at, Bush? At rally. <laughs> this all sounds really I think familiar. it was George Bush. Yeah, I think it was George Bush <laughs> was using Born in the USA. <laughs> um, you know, I guess he forgot to listen to the song before he played it, you know, at his rally. And, uh... And uh, I think Bruce sent him a, you know, a cease and desist uh, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, order because he had not authorized it um, to be <laughs> to be used in that manner. But it's just it's kind of 
ironic <laughs> that that sure. song was chosen. I mean, a uh, song kind of did you listen to the American words? Yeah. Patriotism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jeez. But hey, it had a flag on the cover, and it's you know it's got USA in it, so it must <laughs> be color. good. It's a play as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, a question that we like to ask as we uh, as we get down to the end here is: Does this album still feel relevant, or does it sound dated? Um, Joel, do you want to begin with that one? How, how do you? How does this album hold up in history? Man, I think it's relevant. Um, a couple of those songs are just about, you know, growing up and trying to figure things out. And that just happens generation after generation. So I know my my kids, uh, my son especially, who's into music, he's a, he's a Springsteen fan. Um, he went to one of the concerts with me. So um, he's 30 now. I think, hell yeah, it's relevant. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Mike? I think... I think the lyrics and the the feeling of the album is very relevant. Certainly, you know, in that that massive group of people that would call themselves, you know, middle middle class Americans, I could say could really relate to Bruce's story and the stories he tells. Um, and and I think I could too, even though I'm I'm Canadian, but kind of fit into that sort of class and that kind of blue collar thing I think the some of the sounds and the style and the instrumentation is a little dated um, and I think it does set it in a specific you know time a specific time in the 70s uh, I don't think that's negative uh, but I think it is yeah. you know you can tell where it comes from mm. I think that you know we don't hear a whole lot of for example, saxophone in modern rock in the same way. But we are hearing a lot of the other sounds that are used, like a lot of piano that we'll hear in a lot of modern rock. Uh, we hear a lot of, like, there's, um, I want to say glockenspiel, like, uh, you know, a metal xylophone um, on the album. We hear that, and we're hearing that in a lot of kind of indie rock and folk rock now uh, and pop music, some of those more... Uh, I don't want to say childish, but simple sounds. Uh, so I think in general, it sounds a little dated, but really the feel, and I mean, listen, you know, for the a large group of people, kind of the boomer generation, this is, this is, you know, this is golden stuff. So, you know, you go into a restaurant, you know, where a lot of people are in that age bracket. Yeah. This stuff's going to be playing. So in that sense, it's still very, very relevant. The boomers, the boomers rule, man. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. And it, well, it, yeah, I, uh, quite literally. Yeah, uh, they do. And, <laughs> well, there's and a, I respect that. There's a difference between, uh, you know, like sounding dated and being able to hear it and put it into a period of time. There's a difference between that right. and being relevant, you know? Yeah. Yes, and there is, which is why you know we've talked about changing our question into two questions, because <laughs> right. yeah. you know it's it is two right. different things. Especially some of the earlier Beatles albums sound very '60s, but are clearly still relevant and beloved. Um, yeah, I, I think that I think that both are true for this album. 
it's it's really it holds it holds up far better than I thought it would when when we got to this album. Um, and the parts that I think sound just a little bit off are, like you said, Mike, it's the uh, mixing the saxophone and piano with with this sort of rock sound that that just doesn't happen right now. Um, we don't get we don't really get rock groups with fifteen people on stage. Um, uh, you know, touring around right now, we we get we find some of that in uh, pop music uh, where you play with a like a massive full band backing you, but um, it's more the sort of solo single artist that travels with that, and not necessarily a right a, a rock group. Um, uh, but I, I I think it's fantastic, and I'm um, yeah I I'm really enjoying it this many years after it's it's release um yeah uh i guess that's a good transition to uh was it sound logic this is a question that we ask um trying to put on our own expert hats a little bit to say you know okay rolling stone asked the experts to come up with their top 500 list um they put this one in at number 18 uh does that seem suitable what do we think? Should it be higher, lower, stay as is? I think that um, it's going to move up quite a lot higher on my own list uh, when we do a re-ranking of the top 20. Um, but I think I can understand why it's here at number 17. It it strikes me as a, a great album in terms of, I don't know, there's something even even though I'd never heard it from beginning to end, it felt familiar. It felt uh, well-produced and well-done. Um, and it had a lot of mm. commercial success too. And all of those factors, I think, help make something great. I think we could I think we could at least knock out the Beach Boys pet sounds and move it up to 17. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Did I say a bad thing? You've you've bumped out the album that Ben says should be. Oh no, you had that at just stayed at number two, right? You put you put um, what's going Mm -hmm. on, Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On" up to number one, which was great. Um, I I think I like where this album is. Um, I could see it being obviously at least one higher, as I always say. (laughs) Uh, mostly due to Bob Dylan's Highway 61, which makes no sense at number four. Uh, But, um, you know, when I think about the Beatles albums, they were really, really successful in the U.S. as well as in their home country. They were more successful in the U.S., but they were very successful in the U.K. Uh, This album, for example, was very successful in the U.S., but not nearly as successful in the U.K., not even close. Uh, so I think that in some way the Beatles music and some of the other artists was very uh, relatable and accessible to uh, to American listeners as well as British listeners, but this one didn't mm. seem to cross over to the UK and have the same sort of relevance. So maybe that's a reason why it wouldn't have been higher. In terms of listenability and enjoyment uh, personally, and I think for people, uh, it's... Huh. I've, I enjoyed listening to this way more than probably a half dozen albums we've already listened to mm-hmm. um, just from a personal standpoint. And I think it's, it's 
many people would say, you know, it's, it's not a, it's an uplifting album. It's got a ton of energy mm-hmm. and it's, it's a great one to put on. There's really, we talked about just a couple of tracks that are a little slower, a little more, uh, you know, slower pace, a little more laid back, but most like it's, it's a goer. Um, but that's not always why an album is ranked. So I, I'm okay. I don't think I'd put it too much higher than like a 12, but I, I could put it a little higher. One thing that this album uh, doesn't really do is change the course of music history. A lot of the albums that are in the top 20 are there not even necessarily because they stand the test of time, but because they changed music in some way. Um, and I don't get the sense that this this album was very, very popular, but it didn't like it didn't spark a million uh, albums that followed or, uh, you know, it didn't change all the music that came after it uh, the way that right. some of the other albums have. And I don't know necessarily what to do with that. Um, we <laughs> we realized when we did our own re-rankings that we both had very different criteria. For me, it was much more uh, personal and, uh, I don't know, self-serving. It was basically like, well, yeah. which album what, do I want to listen like? to more? <laughs> and so I think for, my, for, for that reason alone, this is probably going to move up my list just because I keep putting it on. I, I just I like yeah. to have it on. No, it is um, good. It doesn't, but it's not, you know, uh, I can appreciate, I guess, even though I don't love to listen to um, the Velvet Underground, for instance, I can appreciate how they kind of changed the trajectory of music and that weird, funky music that they put out. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. The debate continues, I guess. (laughs) Well, and the other thing you already talked about, Ben, is that the success of this album, a lot of this came when Born in the USA came out. Uh, Some of it, I'm at looking least, yeah. The, well, well, I mean, it kind of, I mean, it, it re-entered both the U.S. Billboard 200 and the U.K. albums mm. in 1985. It went back on the charts. Yeah. And that's because that's when uh, Born in the USA came right. out. So, um, you know, I think that some of its success came later on and that that I'm not saying that to take away from it at all. It just wasn't necessarily when it initially came out, but as you know, maybe even someone like yourself, Joel, who discovered Bruce later on again and kind of went, Oh wow. I really like this. I see Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars at 35. I'm going to have to tune in for that, that episode. (laughs) All right. Oh man, that's one I definitely have no idea about. Do you, Joel, do you want us to pencil you in uh, again for that one? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, I remember, I remember <laughs> buying that vinyl and coming home, and I, I think it said in the vinyl it said something. It said this album is to be played at maximum volume. So, <laughs> I so I set the speakers on the floor and put my head like right between them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> That's awesome. And that was probably back in 74, <laughs> 75 when that came out. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. No, this has been fun. Yeah. Well, we'd like to say thank you, Joel. Uh, it's been really great to have special guests on. Um, Mike and I can ramble on a lot, but having some context, especially for people who can remember 
when some of this album, some of this music came out initially, I think is really helpful and valuable. And uh, it's, it's, I think it's made us every time we have on a guest, who's a, a fan of an artist that we don't know much about, it's helped us appreciate them um, just a little bit more and hearing some of your stories and your experience, I think has made me appreciate this album even more yeah. tonight. So All right. we thank well, you for I'm glad that. to be here. It was fun. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, it might take us a little bit to get to that next one, but, uh, yeah, we'd love to have you back too. What do we have next time, Mike? Uh, anything of interest? Well, yeah, we're going to discuss another album and this one's, <laughs> <laughs> this one's going to be number 19, which is Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. So we hope you will join us again next time uh, on the Sound Logic podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed that classic episode of ours. Tune in next time for the next album on the new 2020 Rolling Stone list.